1: The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Hello, and welcome to A Better Peace. I'm Carrie Lee, Chair of the Department of National Security and Strategy and Director of the Civil-Military Relations Center here at the U.S. Army War College. While we often get caught up in the crises and conflicts right here in the United States, the reality often is that American civil-military relations can be somewhat boring. The U.S. has never experienced a coup d'etat, an act where the military overthrows the civilian leader of a country, and the military is not generally considered to be a partisan political player in American politics. Yet we've seen recently that this is not the case across the world. This summer, a coup in Niger that removed its democratically elected leader brought Western Africa to the brink of war and threatened U.S. aid in the region. Altogether, Africa as a continent has seen seven coups in just the last three years. By the numbers, Africa leads every other region in coup attempts since 1950, with 220, almost half of which have been successful. These numbers are important for global trends. Far from being a backwater problem, Africa is the fastest-growing continent by population and is widely regarded to be the future battleground of great power competition and a powerful actor in its own right. Yet with 54 countries and thousands of linguistic and ethnic groups, Africa is also an incredibly diverse continent where each country has a unique set of geographic, economic, and cultural issues to contend with. So what do civil military relations look like in Africa? And why do they look so different than in the United States and even other regions like Asia and Latin America? How do African history, politics and institutions shape its military's relationship with political elites and its own society? And what can the United States do to encourage healthy civil military relations across African countries and build partnerships that will last into uh, and throughout the 21st century? Here to help us understand is Dr. Charles Thomas, a professor of strategic studies at Air University's Global College. Dr. Thomas received his master's and Ph.D. in African history from the University of Texas at Austin and previously taught in the Department of History at the United States Military Academy. His interests lie largely in African military history and particularly in post-colonial African military structures and conflicts. He is also the co-managing editor of the Journal of African Military History, his co-authored book, Secession and Separatist Conflicts in Post-Colonial Africa, was published by the University of Calgary in 2020, and his monograph, Ujama's Army, The Creation and Evolution of the Tanzania People's Defense Force, 1964 to 1979, is under contract with the University of Ohio Press, making him the perfect person to help us ask and answer some of these questions about African Civil-Military Relations. Dr. Thomas, welcome to the program.
0: Oh, well, thank you for having me, Dr. Lee. And on top of that, thank you all out there listening. Uh, I'll try to make this uh, interesting, enlightening, and um, hopefully uh, at the very least entertaining.
1: Sounds like a plan. <laughs> so what brought you to the study of Africa and African militaries?
0: Oh, well, that is a long and boring story. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Uh, to, to keep it short, um, like a lot of historians or, or burgeoning historians and undergraduate, I, I was casting around for what I was interested in, and I knew I was interested in militaries. I ended up taking my capstone seminar um, in my senior year um, in something called The Roots of War with our then military historian, Dr. John Lamphere. Um, in doing so, we were looking at what nowadays we'd think of as the, the conflict continuum, um, and we were trying to find case studies where we saw conflict shifting along that from perhaps raiding or guerrilla warfare to a larger um, conventional conflict and back. Um, In trying to find my subject for that, I, like all cool people, opened my Oxford history of the First World War and uh, immediately saw um, Lawrence and the Arab revolt and thought, well, I already know about that. And flipped the page and saw a, a picture of a line of African soldiers basically marching across the savannah and I had never heard of that. I, I had never even known that there had been the First World War in Africa. Um, I came back with my my proposal for the paper, whereupon Dr. Lamphere said, well, don't you know I'm also the African historian here? Um, and he very much fostered my interest. And as I finished sort of that project um, and moved on towards graduate school, um, my advisor eventually when I started graduate school said, well, you know, you can work on African military topics that could probably be of a lot of interest to people. And so I've just kind of continued along with that and somehow stumbled into a career.
1: What a terrific coincidence in undergrad. <laughs> so why would you argue that it's important for us to study Africa today?
0: Well, I think you've covered a lot of the points already to a degree um, in that wonderful introduction. Um Looking at it just from the present day, we are looking at what has sometimes been called the youth bulge or the like, but it is both the fastest growing continent in terms of um, in terms of population. It uh, actually has a large amount of developing economies, and beyond that, a large amount of developing democracies. And as we look out across the continent, we can look at how we can engage and really sort of influence um, and aid and guide, in many cases, um, sort of this new generation that in many cases has lived through autocracies, has lived through coups, has lived through revolts and rebellions. And what will be part of a generation that's looking forward to building a better world.
1: So why do African civil military relations look so different from the rest of the world?
0: Oh, well, again, I've got a long answer and a short answer. And the short answer would be colonialism. (laughs) But the longer answer with that effectively is when we look at Um, How civil military relations, say, um, evolved in Europe and eventually sort of also became the United States model um, with, you know, sort of Blackstone's commentaries leading to the militia model in Britain that then sort of comes over to the United States. Um, These are the result of a long period of state and the nation formation and of establishing norms where you often see these are, um, contested, there's bloody revolts and revolutions that emerge out of this as, um, you've got, I mean, for lack of a better way of putting it, the drawing of national boundaries around where ethnic groups are or the pushing of ethnic groups out. Um, this is the story of the centralization of Europe, uh, European states, right? Um, And that process is effectively imposed upon African states um, during what is at best a two-generation period. There is the conquest of what eventually become European colonies in Africa. There then is the imposition of essentially a skeletal European state there that's used to extract resources and then there's the creation of european style militaries but that aren't built around the ideas of say a national ideal because there is no nation there and so in many cases once they emerge into independence these are incomplete nation building projects with a grafted on colonial military and this leads to very different relations than one that grows say organically such as the united states army um There is no Newberg conspiracy that essentially lays down a a sort of legend of of civilian dominance. There's more of the expectation and the discussion, but um, that doesn't necessarily establish a norm.
1: So for our listeners, the Newburgh conspiracy happens in the late eighteenth century when former Revolutionary War soldiers are ready to march on Congress and George Washington essentially tells them to shut up and color <laughs> and uh, that the the United States military does not get involved in politics and does not exert its will on the politically elected leaders. Um you'd mentioned state formation in Europe and you know one of the the interesting things that happens post decolonization in the 1960s in Africa, is that this process of state formation doesn't really happen. There's not a lot of war that happens in Africa and the kind of redrawing of boundaries. Is it fair to say that this also significantly affected the ways in which militaries were relating to their societies and their political leaders?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, because you've got this, and and this is a sort of hoary old chestnut in African studies, that these boundaries are imposed um, externally. They don't reflect sort of popular will, that sort of thing. And yes, that's true, but it's not necessarily the root of, of all of the, the challenges these states have had. Um, but in this case, not having necessarily this external enemy. Um Well, again, as we've sort of discussed, Africa's a big continent. There are 54 and counting countries there. They've each had different paths to get where they are. Some are able to focus on external enemies. Um, There's uh, particularly what are called the frontline states, who are um, Tanzania, Zambia, eventually Mozambique, um, eventually Angola, eventually Botswana. These are states that are essentially right on the edge of what's sort of white-dominated colonies in Southern Africa. And they're very focused very early on on beating back what they see as the last vestiges of colonialism. And so in many ways, they do have an external enemy. And I would argue that in many of these cases, we see much more normalized civil-military relations. Whereas um, what we find in a lot of other cases is there's already an internal other um, that since there's not an external opponent, there's an internal opponent that can be used as um as a, scape- as a scapegoat, as a target to try to keep the military focused. Um, but there's often not the resources to develop them in the way to actually eventually get rid of that.
1: So I definitely want to come back to this. Um, but you also raise the point that, you know, different countries are colonized by different European powers in Africa. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't imagine that every European power would take the same approach to building militaries and to state um, development that um, each other does. So uh, how did each kind of European country, the differences between France and Britain and Germany and Belgium, uh, how did they approach the task of building a military?
0: Oh, well that's a fascinating question and one I could Go on for far longer than your listeners would ever <laughs> want to listen to. Um, but the easiest way to put it is yes, they all had very different visions for what these colonies were to do, how they should be governed, that sort of the thing. Um, the French, for example, very much believed, particularly in by the time you're hitting the the Third Republic, I think we're on <laughs> um, at this Who point. we can keep track? Yeah, of uh, um, very much have adopted the idea that being French isn't necessarily an ethnic. Um, Surety um, that if you speak French, if you're Catholic, if you believe in Republican ideals, you can be French. By 1914, they finished transforming peasants into Frenchmen and now they very much have this idea that well Africans can be Frenchmen too and so they very much be in a process of assimilation of you will speak French there will be mission schools you'll believe in these Republican ideals and eventually there very much is the idea that these um, évalues, my French is terrible um, but that these um, for lack of a better way of putting it evolved Africans will themselves be French and can take part in the governance of France can themselves be French In every particular, Um, this is very much believed by many of the folks that are there of the Africans that that really follow this process until they actually go to metropolitan France. And then they very quickly find out that they may speak French, they may know Baudelaire, they may, you know, um, make the sign of the cross perfectly but they are not seen as french.
1: So how does this translate into militaries then? Do they do they model their colonial militaries on the french military?
0: Absolutely. Um and in many ways so the french model actually ends up being very complex to a degree because when they they begin very early on um and in fact the first several drafts that they bring forth they actually make french citizens. But what that means is then in the next several sort of formations that they create where they actually are colonial soldiers, where they are colonial subjects, it leads into this complex question of these African Frenchmen essentially say, no, we get wine rations the same as as the French. We get the same rights and responsibilities and pay. Um, Whereas the other African soldiers are told, no, you're Tirao Senegalais. You you don't exist in the same path as these men do. And it leads to actually an internal struggle in many cases between what's your status, not are you, um, basically, are you French or are you colonial, as opposed to are you African or are you European? Oh,
1: how interesting. So let's turn to maybe uh, the case that you know best, which is Tanzania. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a British colony.
0: Absolutely. Yes. So
1: how did the British approach? Colonial militaries.
0: So for theirs, they very much used, um, they sort of imported the Indian model. And in many cases, this came with bringing Indian troops over first to sort of be a stopgap as they recruited. But the general idea was, number one, the locals um, were not necessarily advanced enough to be officers or be in a command structure. And so first first things first, there were European officers in charge. Mm -hmm. From this on, there was the idea very quickly that... um, not everyone was able to be a soldier. Um, in India, you had the Dogras, the Patans, the Sikhs, the Baluchi, who were seen as martial races that were naturally more manly and virile and, and violent and and more than anything else, amenable to European discipline. And so, therefore, could be recruited and be made sort of these sub-colonial actors. And they did the same in Africa, um, where there was the idea that, say, in Tanganyika, Tanzania, um, the Sakuma, the Hehe, the Nyamwezi and the Ngoni were recruited from, whereas no one else was. Um, although this became fluid during the World Wars when they needed more recruits, but there very much was the idea of you were martial and you could serve under the Europeans, or you were non-martial and you were effete and needed to be ruled.
1: So I can't imagine that this was healthy for nation building.
0: <laughs> no, not at all. Um, <laughs> and and it's interesting because the actual transition in many cases, they're sort of well first there already was that division between effectively almost a military caste versus a rising political movement. But this military caste were effectively told to stay out of this rising politics. And so now when these emerging political parties became the state government, the military had few, if any connections to them. Mm. Um, And in fact, in many cases, up until the day that the flag, the colonial flag came down and the national one went up, um, many cases they were suppressing them. Um, Beyond this, they immediately lose many of the colonial privileges they had. They're no longer part of essentially this ruling, um, at least having access to the ruling elite. Um, In many cases, they lose tax benefits. They lose the ability to effectively sort of um, really use the colonial structures for their own benefit and become, in many cases, forgotten. Um, It's sort of as a, well, we need a military because we need a military, but we don't have a lot of money. So you guys just need to just kind of sit back and just don't cause problems while we try to figure out how to build a nation.
1: So if I find myself the leader of a newly independent country, right? World War II ends, uh, all of a sudden, colonialism is sort of unsustainable, Mm -hmm. and you have massive decolonization that happens across the African continent. Mm -hmm. I I find myself in charge of this newly independent country, and I'm thinking, I have to think that I'd be thinking, all these colonial structures, let's get rid of them. This this leaves a bad taste in my mouth from an era of history that I would rather forget. Um, is this what countries did or did they keep some of the kind of colonial military structures?
0: In many cases, they adopted them in whole. They essentially just said, well, we're going to patch you over to, to for those of you out there that are part of an outlaw biker gang. Um, <laughs> we're, we're going to patch you over. You'll on one day, you'll salute the British flag. On the next day, you'll march out and you'll salute the the Tanganyikan flag, the Nigerian flag, because there was the assumption that militaries were apolitical. Um, And uh, and beyond that, they were seen as part of, well, you needed a military to be a state, to be a nation. And in fact, very early on, they were seen as almost a nexus of sort of this this national pride. And that actually helps initially with their expansion because there's the Nigeria, for example, and Ghana very quickly begin trying to build navies. And, of course, the British are like, well, those are expensive. Navies cost a lot of money. and sure. you, you need to buy, buy ships from us. And, okay, we can maybe give you some old minesweepers. And they're like, no, we want an actual Navy with big, powerful warships. I mean, you know, in relation. Um, and they said, well, you don't need those. And they said, well, yes, but states have navies. Right. States have armies. And so they uh, they keep them and they essentially say, well, you know, we'll try to do what we can with you, but we're not going to have a lot of money and we can't train you up to be officers very quickly. And we have no capacity, but just be good and stay and keep keep good relations and we'll all be a good state building together.
1: As a side note, our students covered international relations theory yesterday in the classroom, (laughs) and uh, I will never fail to be amazed at how much of international politics is driven by status. Um, But so I want to turn to, well, actually related to this relationship with society, right? So you've mentioned a couple of times that many of the militaries, um, in especially in the British model, were taken from so-called martial races or different types of tribes and ethnicities that they considered to be uh, more effective and capable of serving in the military. Um, how does this affect their relationship with the rest of the society of the country? Um, you know, because I'm, I'm hearing both that they're popular and they're a symbol of national pride, but it's also a sense that there are only select people who have been chosen to serve. So how do we reconcile that?
0: Oh, and that's a fascinating question. And I would say that we actually need to look at this as a three-legged stool where you've got- Oh
1: no, the yeah, three-legged I stool. I know. It,
0: it, don't worry. This is the uh, the Clausewitzian the three-legged stool, <laughs> not the uh, not the likey one. Um, but so um, you have the government, but in many cases, they- While they represent specific constituencies within the state, in many cases, they themselves also are separate from. um, These are the few university graduates they'll have, in many cases, have managed to come from um, populations that either urbanized or had always been urban. Um, And so they ascend to governance without necessarily having a lot of connection to groups outside of perhaps the ones they grew up in. So this is a state government, not necessarily a national one in many cases. They have their own subnational sort of um, focus. And so the military becomes more part of an interest group butting up against the govern the state governance interest group against whose needs are going to be met, where are resources going to be going to be directed. Um, And then meanwhile, you've got the larger population that very early on has this idea of we're going to develop quickly. Life is going to be better than under colonialism. We're going to create a good parliament. There's hopes and dreams. And so the military is part of this dream because that's part of this new nation. The government is and the civil service is part of this new dream because it's part of the new nation. And so they're very much seen as these um, professional educated classes that are if you will, um... Th- Frederick Cooper calls them uh, the gatekeepers, but we also can kind of look at them as a, a thin crust over essentially larger underdeveloped states. Um, and so it's the it's the civil service and often the political parties that are butting heads with the military as opposed to the larger populace as a whole, but they're all serving essentially their sort of subnational constituencies.
1: That jives with some of the work that our colleagues over at the Naval War College have done looking at uh, Nonahal Singh and David Burbach, I believe, on public opinion about African about militaries in Africa, and uh, across the continent. So turning to the present day, um, there's a there's a strong tradition in the United States of the military not wanting to get involved in politics, uh, even to the point of trying to ignore politics altogether and potentially going even too far away from the political spectrum and not wanting to deal with the political. Um, But this tradition obviously doesn't exist everywhere. So why do some militaries feel the need to get involved and even in some extreme cases overthrow the government and take over governance themselves?
0: So in this case, and I already sort of set it up with a three-legged stool, they very much see their own interests being threatened. Um, And oftentimes this is happening at the same time that the state government itself is I don't want to say floundering but perhaps running into more challenges than perhaps they can handle at the time. I think um, Mali in 2012 is actually a really good example of this and perhaps even Mali more recently Mm -hmm. um, where you've got um, essentially the, the military is dispatched to try to take out the uh, to take on an internal opponent, um, they can't necessarily handle it on their own. They're not getting the resources that they need necessarily from the central government, um, and it becomes a question of well, who's who's going to be in charge? You know, who who gets to essentially call these shots? Where do we get the resources that we need to wage this? Um, and beyond that, in some cases, where do the leaders of the military? How do they keep their status? even as, well, they they don't have the resources to do the job they're supposed to do. Um, And in many cases, this then leads to um, oligarchic competition, I guess is the nicest way to put it, um, (laughs) where the military essentially says, "Okay, we're done. We're we're going to overthrow this government. And in many cases, because the government has been struggling with challenges, I mean, ultimately, they own not being able to defeat essentially the Islamist rebels in the north, um, you know, whole buck stops here sort of thing. Um, to where they're already looked at as essentially not achieving the goals the government is supposed to, the military will often come with this very technocratic reputation of, well, we're professionals. We're, we're the man on horseback, right? We're going to charge in and we'll overthrow this corrupt, ineffective government. We'll whip things into shape with the discipline and leadership that obviously this government couldn't do. And we'll just be caretakers until we can elect a new government, which will represent your... You're in you know the real values of this country,
1: so what I'm hearing is that a lot of these coup attempts are they stem from internal challenges, um either a lack of state capacity or internal security challenges that threaten population security and uh, safety and that kind of thing. Is that right?
0: I would say absolutely,
1: so. Uh, which brings me to, you know, we talked about having a strong external threat. Now, mm-hmm. some like Michael Desch in the American context have theorized that a strong external security threat leads to much stronger civilian control and healthy civil military relations because the military is not acting in a bureaucratic fashion and isn't an interest group in this. And, uh, you know, external threats help to unify internal actors as opposed to divide them the way that internal security threats might do. Uh, do you think that that's fair? And do you think that that's kind of is that been the case in Africa?
0: I would say that. Well, the answer is complex. Sorry. Okay. To, uh, no, it depends. Um, yeah, yeah, it's exactly
1: yeah. the right war college yeah. answer.
0: But uh, I would say that we definitely see that, for example, in Tanzania, where they had already been very much working on a nation nation building and centralization um project with uh, Ujamaa socialism and the like. But then when Idi Amin takes over Uganda just to the north and immediately becomes very belligerent and very insulting towards their president and them as people and this and that, mm-hmm. it very much hastens this pro- process. And by the time there's actually a war in 1978 between the two, it really is seen as the great patriotic war for the Tanzanians. It really brings them together and although also eventually sort of causes the failure of the larger nation building program, really hastens along several steps of it as well. On the other hand, for those states that don't necessarily have a and convenient idiomine right across the border, in many cases because it's all, these are already spaces of ethnic contestation and because of where lines have been drawn and the like, oftentimes there's I guess what we would put, put of as um, exclusive nationalism of we're a nation and we can come together because we're not them. Um, and so in particular, especially when there's longer histories of um, of frustration, of conflict. So for example, especially along the Sahel Belt, where you've got um, oftentimes these herding populations, or even more specifically the Kaltamashek, who we often call the Tuareg. Um, these are populations that always, or at least for years and years and years, have had friction along this this border area um, and it's very easy for the governments to say well yes the Tuareg exists within Mali but do they want to be part of Mali do we want them to be part of Mali do we? they and in many cases for example the Tuareg had actually been sort of promised their own Sahelian state um, in the 1960s that didn't come to pass um, I'm shocked yeah what <laughs> <laughs> um, but been, And this often then is exacerbated by the fact that then these internal others are themselves cut out from both this oligarchic competition and then the lines of patronage that come out of that. So not only are they more apt to revolt, rebel, be forced into areas of violence because it's the one way they can actually try to access what the state should be providing in their mind, but it also leads then very much for these groups that then see that attempted access as a threat to unify against them.
1: So the coup in Niger has revived much critique of the United States because we often find out later that coup leaders have had some form of training in the United States. And here I'm also thinking of a former Army War College graduate who led an unscheduled transition of power on the African continent Mm -hmm. uh, not that long ago. So do you think that this is a fair critique of the United States? Uh, is the U.S. passing on training that then leads to coups d'etat?
0: Now, as admittedly, as a self-interested actor here, um, I will say, though, and I will say this and pound it. And I would pound the table if I didn't think it would mess up the audio. Correlation <laughs> is not causation. Um, I think, um, once again, Nana Hall's book gives us uh, that's Dr. Nana Hall Singh at the Naval War College. Um Gives us actually a a much better way of looking at this, which is those officers that are sent abroad for PME, whether originally it was Sandhurst in Britain in the 60s, um, Saint Cyr, and now into the United States, occasionally Russia or China. um, These are already officers who are intelligent, influential connected. These are the fast burners or they would not be selected for these very prestigious positions. Um, But when we actually look at coups as a coordination game, trying to bring together a party that can essentially bring the at least early illusion of success together and get the others to get other officers or other parts of the military to stay on the sidelines, the officers that are going to be able to do that are ambitious well-connected, coordinated, have gone to prestigious places. And so simply put, it's more that those selected to come to places like this um, are not learning to do a coup here, if you will. It's they're already the ones that if the situation or if the conditions for a coup arises, they're the ones best placed and often most influential in being able to make one happen.
1: So talk talk to me a little bit about uh, the security force assistance that the United States often uh, gives to African countries. And many times, you know, this kind of assistance and this aid is conditional upon certain state benchmarks like not doing a coup. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are the dynamics there, particularly in Western Africa right now where there's been a lot of concern about, you know, U.S. counterterrorism? agenda in Western Africa and how that might be affected by the coup in Niger?
0: Oh, goodness. Well, first of all, I would argue that we need to get very, very clear on what a coup is. And I say this simply because um, we lose legitimacy in essentially setting these red lines for if you do X, Y, and Z, then the conditionality of this aid will will kick in. Um, When we effectively sort of tiptoe around the idea that a military seasoning, a government, is a coup or not to preserve our own interests in a state, it degrades essentially any sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, deterrence that may actually bring to bear. Um,
1: Right. It compromises the deterrent threat. Exactly. Um,
0: The other piece I would put on that is um, I would split those pieces into education and training. And especially if this is a national security and specifically PME audience, you'll, they'll immediately light up. You said education versus training. Um, <laughs> but it's very important here because um, in particular, our, our training and equipping missions um, for the past decade or more have been themselves built on a compromised model, I would say. And this is, again, sort of, I would argue my own personal opinion, but backed up by a good amount of research. Um, as early as 2012, there's a naval um, postgraduate school thesis by Simonson Powell, um, who is one of our special forces um, trainers who had gone to Mali back when doing those first waves of sort of trying to build this, the, build their military up. Um, and he effectively says, well, look, we're doing this episodically. We show up for six weeks. we." train them how to shoot rifles or bushcraft or or this or that, and then we go away, and then the next group of people comes in. There's no extended relationship built, and how do you actually build professionalism, relationships, even influence or cultural transmission, if it's just pop in, show you how to do this, and leave? An enduring engagement um, is far more important, effectively, is is what he argues, and I would say that, honestly, looking at sort of the outcomes of many of our train and equip missions, um, just using that model hasn't been as successful as we would like it to be.
1: So that's fascinating because that stands in contrast to many of the U.S.'s foreign military sales, where we say if you buy the F-16, you get the whole maintenance, training, education package that comes along with it. And we take care of you for a long time and make sure that not only can you fly the plane, but we will provide the support that allows you to continue flying the plane for a long period of time. Why does this look so different on the African continent then?
0: I would argue that some of this is due to effectively going back even to sort of the colonial era, what we sort of assume African actors need um, we still in many cases have a well you don't need that why would an African military need an expensive F-16 um, which arguable you know i mean that's uh <laughs> uh but then this is built air in,
1: power on the african continent yes uh,
0: uh book maybe coming out in 2025 we'll see um no, uh, <laughs> but then um but then with the um but then even with the idea of needing this maintenance package and needing the professionalism to support them that sort of thing there's been the argument for more light attack aircraft like super tucanos and the like although that was fraught itself with the sales to nigeria um the other piece out of it is not only are we not necessarily willing to put that much resources or offer that much credit in these cases. I think the better part of our resources recently, and specifically bang for our buck, has actually been in Something similar to that model, but I would say is the education model, is actually building on the professionalism, building those basics in there. Um, sorry, that, that sounds very paternalistic. In building essentially these this broader education, broader doctrine, and really sort of bringing up the overall capacity of many of these militaries to, to basically build and sort of um, eventually expand on their own, really build their own cadres.
1: So my final question here before we take off for the day, uh, are there things, in addition to this kind of longer-term education mission that you've discussed uh, most recently, are there other things that the U.S. can do to help prevent coups in Africa and foster healthy civil-military relations?
0: Oh, well, okay. Uh, Also, going back to my original, we have to call a coup a coup. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would say... And I say this as someone that that has not been inside some of these meetings. And so maybe some of these things have been tried or are already in process. But I would say I was very heartened several years back when essentially the the president of, of the Gambia said, no, I'm staying in power. And effectively, all the other ECOWAS states around said, no, you're not. We will send a military mission in and affect and Change, because we are now a democratic block. We demand free and you know free and open elections. You very obviously did not win this, um, and I and we were very, we very much stood four square behind those efforts as we should have. Um, I think that we need to continue to incentivize that, because um, the regional blocks really are where a lot of the policing can happen in ways that we cannot. Um, now admittedly, number one, it was easy to say that to the Gambia because the Gambia was very small and was surrounded by Senegal. And, you know, uh, uh, it, it would be very easy for a military mission there sure. as opposed to, um, as opposed to say Niger. Um, but I would also say that by not really leaning on that. Uh, on by not building the capacity of the regional bloc to self-police itself like that it made it where now we've really gone down a road where uh, as we even discussed a brief bit earlier you've got Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso all of whom immediately stood up and said no we will oppose any sort of action trying to get rid of this military government Right. Um, and I think trying to build the capacities of regional blocks outside of West Africa for example will be a good way to create at least a bulwark to hopefully avoid this happening elsewhere.
1: Well, this about ends our time here. But if you would like to know more about the U.S. Army War College's Civil Military Relations Center and our programming, you can find us at cmrc.armywarcollege.edu. I also want to thank you, Dr. Thomas, for your time and insights into what is surely an interesting period in global civil-military relations. And thanks to all of you for listening into our series on modern civil-military relations. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and subscribe to A Better Peace so that you don't have to miss an episode. And then rate the podcast on your podcatcher of choice so that we can grow our community. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Carrie Lee.